0: Hello, this is Damian Cabrera, and welcome to Real Talk. In this episode recorded live at USCHA, we will be discussing monkeypox with federal officials and also with community-based organizations. Hope you enjoy and make sure you share it with your friends. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome
1: to tonight's town hall on um, our federal response to monkeypox. It gives me great pleasure to see a few faces. It's really, really bright up here. So allow me the grace um, (laughs) that that comes with. I am Daniel Griffin. I have the pleasure of serving as the NMAC Monkeypox Coordinator um, since the beginning of this response. Outside of the everyday work that I do, I am also the project manager with the HIV Vaccine Trials Network. Over the next 90 minutes or so, we will dive into a discussion Um, allowing our federal partners to provide some additional information on the national response as we look at monkeypox. We'll also open a dialogue with some community response, specifically here on the island and also back on the mainland. And finally, we'll open up some Q&A from you all. Uh, First up, before we dive in, we'll actually have our executive directors from AIDS United, the National Coalition of STD Directors, and the AIDS Institute brings greetings.
2: Good evening. I'm Jesse Milan, the President and CEO at AIDS United, and it's my pleasure on behalf of the HIV, STI, and Viral Hepatitis Partnership to welcome you tonight. The partnership includes involves five organizations who have been banding together since the election of Donald Trump to speak with one voice on issues that are important to us in the HIV, STD, and biohepatitis community. They are the, A- the AIDS Institute, AIDS United, NASTAD, the National Coalition of STD Directors, and... And Paul Kawada and NMAC has... Get- <laughs> <laughs> and NMAC has made it so possible for us to host tonight's town hall event, which was not originally scheduled because we know that the monkeypox vaccine, monkeypox epidemic is growing and become a crisis, and it was important for this to be superimposed in this conference so that we could have this conversation with our federal partners who are leading our monkeypox response. So we're thrilled to be part of this, we're thrilled that you're here, and we're thrilled that our federal partners are offering an update to us tonight on what is happening from the federal level to stop this crisis from infecting us all. And so with that, I'd like to introduce David Harvey and Rachel Klein from the AIDS Institute to bring up a greeting from their organizations as part of the HIV, STI, and viral hepatitis partnership. Rachel.
3: good afternoon, everyone. I'm Rachel Klein. I'm the Deputy Executive Director of the AIDS Institute. I am so, want to thank all of you for coming this evening um, after a, a long couple of days and a great couple of days at the conference. I know everyone's tired, but I think it really speaks to the importance of this issue. Um, and I'm very excited that the AIDS Institute is able to um, help Uh, work on this issue with all of our allies and to be part of this evening, Um, and I really want to thank all of you and to our speakers tonight for coming to have this important discussion. Thanks so much.
4: Welcome to tonight's town hall meeting. My name is David Harvey. I'm the executive director of the National Coalition of STD Directors. Uh, This town hall could not come at a more important moment, so many thanks to NMAC, the partnership, the NCSD team who leads the national MPV work group of national organizations. Um, I really look forward to this evening's uh, conversation. Is MPV, otherwise known as monkeypox, an STI? I hope you all can answer that question uh, tonight. I also hope that we can get into issues of syndemics, a syndemic approach to ending HIV, hepatitis, and MPV. Without a doubt, this very long summer of three months battling this outbreak reflects uh, some really innovative work that happened, led by uh, the infamous, indefatigable Dimitri Daskalakis in the White House, and now John O'Merman, who is here tonight as well from CDC leading the response. Um, I hope that we can take stock of some of the uh, really groundbreaking initiatives and work that has happened um, as a result of our community, all of you, jumping into action to deal uh, with this outbreak. Um, so welcome to tonight's town hall meeting. I, I, I want to recognize and thank all of you for jumping into action Uh, to deal with this outbreak. The work is not done. We have horrific um, disparities in accessing vaccine and treatment, and so uh, the work will continue, and I know all of you will take stock of that tonight. Uh, So thank you very much, and welcome. Thank you.
1: Let's give them all another round of applause. So, before we continue, I'm going to have my colleague, Damien Cabrera. Where is my friend Damien? Damien? Come on up, introduce yourself, friend, and let, um, please tell us how we're going to operate today.
0: Hello everyone, I'm Damien Cabrera, program manager for the achievement division at EMAC. And I'm really excited to have this conversation. We have been working with MonkeyBox for quite some time now, and um, we have put a lot of effort in, into having this conversation. I'm really, really looking forward to, to hearing the, your comments, your thoughts, your feedback. Uh, it, you know, this is a conversation. We want to make sure that there's space for Q&A, uh, and to make sure that you know that your concerns, your feedback is heard. So thank you so much for coming here. I know it's been a long day. But but I am happy to see you all here. I do wanted to say uh, for those as uh, Spanish speakers, para aquellos que ellos hablan español, eh, para la parte de preguntas, eh, cada persona tiene sus devices de interpretación. Eh, sin embargo, si necesitan eh, hacer preguntas en en español, yo no soy intérprete, pero puedo hacer mi mejor esfuerzo por interpretar sus preguntas al inglés. Así que thank you everyone. Thank you, thank you friend.
1: So I'll go ahead and call up our federal partners to the stage. I'll also call up our community um, partners to join us. We will transition over to the love seats on our Oprah um, couch set, and we'll begin the conversation from there. Thank you again. So, um, I'll actually have Dr. Jonathan Merman begin. And Dr. Merman serves as the incident manager on the CDC monkeypox response. Um, any opening comments, questions, or statements?
5: I do. First, I wanted to thank you, Daniel and Damian, and the Council of Five for invi- for thinking about this session and for inviting me to be a part of it. Um, it's, uh, you know, last year I remember talking um, with the with a number of you about how it was really a difficult time for our communities um, with COVID and with the hurricanes and and with kind of the economic and social reverberations of those experiences. Um, And and also we were struggling to to continue to promote health justice and prevent HIV in the middle of kind of turbulent times. And, and, And just as we were over the brunt of all of that, monkeypox hit. And um, it seems unfair. Um, It seems unfair because it kind of found itself within all of this social inequity, and um, and has resulted in both causing thousands of people to be sick um, in the United States and throughout the world, and um, and really um, affected so deeply all of us who um, had thought that we were kind of moving beyond and succeeding somehow with HIV and struggling with with other STIs and suddenly we have monkeypox in the middle of all this um, really challenging our structures and and bringing up um, all of the issues that we have spent our time over the past two decades struggling against. so I, I don't, you know, tomorrow we have a plenary session where we're going to go into more details. And I had hoped that this time would really be a time to listen to you all, to, to, to hear the, the issues that are, that are most important for you right now, and, and to hear from you what you wanted us to do differently um, so that we can do a better job. Um, certainly in my uh, deployment as um, incident manager for CDC on Monkeypox, that's my intent, is to take good information and do a better job. Um, we can, and then to see how monkeypox ultimately ensconces itself within the syndemics that we spend our day-to-day lives working on. Um, and so I just wanted to, uh, to end by saying that um, monkeypox is divisive and so are many strains of America these days, but it reminds me that in 1977 James Baldwin said people can cry easier than they can change and those who say it can't be done are usually interrupted by others doing it. And I think we have been sad and we've been frustrated for a long time, but I can speak for CDC and for my center staff and state unequivocally that we are committed to working alongside all of you to continue fighting until the end, knowing that it won't be easy, so thank you.
1: Thank you so very much. Next up we'll just have some open awards from Dr. Susan Rabalato. Okay, she is serving as the monkeypox response from the HRSA HIV AIDS Bureau, please.
6: Thank you, and again, as Jonah just said, thank you for having us tonight. Um, We're really looking forward to hearing what you have to do. Um, Since the monkeypox outbreak started, um, HRSA has been working with HHS, particularly CDC, to to make sure that the response um, happens. Um, And with our um, Brian White programs, we know they are trusted providers in the community, so it was really important for us to get the resources and information out to our Ryan White clinics as quickly as possible. We've had um, several uh, of our Have You Heard, our monthly webinars that we have included CDC um, and updates for um, MPX, as well as making sure that we had uh, access to resources. We set up a web page on the ryanwhite.hersa.gov website and have also sent out several letters to make sure that Ryan White recipients know they can use their resources for the treatment, for the um, the vaccination support that they need to get the vaccine out to the clients, as well as any other medical issues related to MPX can be taken care of in the clinic. We also have worked, um, we did uh, receive a allotment of Genios vaccine that we wanted to get quickly to our clinics. And how we did that, we went with our um, Part C programs that are duly funded with our health center programs at HRSA, and we're able to distribute vaccine to 50 clinics um, and quickly get it out to the people that needed it most. With that, CDC also has um, updated their guidance with PrEP, which we really appreciate, um, so that not only can our Ryan White clients be vaccinated, but also their contacts and close Uh, relatives in the clinic can be um, vaccinated as well. So we'll continue to work um, to make sure that our Ryan White clinics have the information and are able to leverage resources to respond to the MPX outbreak.
1: Thank you so very much. Next up we have Dr. Dimitri Daskalakis who is serving as our White House coordinator. Dr. Daskalakis, please. Thanks, Daniel. This is the part that it's what Dimitri did this summer is what we're going to
7: talk about. So first of all, um, I'm serving as the deputy coordinator for the White House um, response to monkeypox. And I'll say that thinking about um, the strategy and the conversation, I'll I'll say engagement with community has been really pivotal in terms of uh, nuancing and calibrating the response at the White House. So I want to thank many of you who we've leaned on heavily uh, to sort of engage with us. Um, Really, the White House response has focused on a couple of areas, equity, access, and now demand. And so um, I'll start with access before equity because it was actually the one of the more important things we had to deal with early on to be able to open the door um, to strategies that would allow us to address equity in a, in a different way. So um, again, vaccine supply was a significant issue at the beginning, and really through three very separate domains, we were able to uh, increase vaccine supply in the U.S. And so um, whether it's through the intradermal route that um, allowed about four doses per vaccine, um, asking Bavaria Nordic to speed up their production or creating a fill and finish plant um, in the United States. Those three things really allowed us to increase access to a vaccine that for a while didn't match the demand in terms of supply. And um, just thinking about the outbreak, um, I often remind people about all the pivots that we had to make. And I think you all spoke about a couple of them. So this outbreak is unprecedented in terms of what it looks like. This is not how much, monkeypox usually goes. Um, And so the fact that it sort of moved through a population, um, a pep strategy was the way it started, didn't work out because we didn't really know everyone's contacts. Then came PEP++, really limited primarily by the fact that we didn't have enough vaccine supply to address demand. And then with appropriate vaccine supply and the contour of the outbreak and the demographics becoming a lot more clear, CDC is able to move into PrEP stance, which I think is so valuable. So first, um, access. um, I focus on vaccine, but testing is also a part of it, like making sure there's adequate testing as well as venues for that testing. Um, Equity then is really um, at the base, um, one of the key strategies that we had to work on. And really thinking about the way the vaccines rolled out, um, there was a mismatch between who was getting vaccinated and who was getting the infections from really the very beginning. And so ideas like the large event equity interventions that CDC worked on, the smaller equity interventions, listening to people who said, I don't want to get a vaccine on my forearm because literally it's stigmatizing because there's a mark, um, and being able to extend that to like the upper back and the shoulder, um, really comes from the engagement and from the desire to address equity. And um, important to mention that, that some things come directly out of the HIV STD playbook. This is about a syndemic. Monkeypox is not a disease that lives in isolation. And one of the examples I think that's really important is that when you look at the PrEP guidance from CDC, it says... Don't sweat the details in terms of a risk assessment. Does that sound familiar? Those are PrEP guidance um, out of HIV. And so the inspiration of that to address the stigma and to address the barriers is critical. And now we're at the point where we have a demand issue. So we have vaccine, we have strategies, and we have uh, a lot of folks getting second shots, but really a lot of individuals need to get their first shot. And it's really about identifying ways that we can leverage our relationships with the community, hear more about the engagements, and yes, do syndemic work. So I'm just going to toot everyone's horn here for a second. Um, CDC releasing a very important letter saying that there's flexibility in STD HIV funding. Ryan White releasing a letter saying to use Ryan White funds to support monkeypox. SAMHSA releasing a letter to say that mental health and substance abuse resources, both fiscal and staffing, could be used to address monkeypox. I think, yeah, that's worth a clap for sure. (laughs) But that is like, Not only the way to answer this outbreak, it reminds us that HIV and STIs, syndemics, keep the system warm to be able to respond to future outbreaks. So by really resourcing HIV and STD adequately and mental health adequately, what happens is we create a resilient system that allows us to pivot faster than we did this time because we're good, we have adequate resources. So when we think about monkeypox, we have to think about monkeypox, but remember, it doesn't live alone. It's a part of syndemics, and what we can do to improve our STD, HIV, viral hepatitis response system in that syndemic model ends up being our way to address both monkeypox and future threats to the population.
1: Thanks. Thank you. So truly building up a platform to be ready to respond next time around. Keeping
7: the system warm. Thank I've you. been living in a hotel since I moved to DC. And I know from my frozen dinners that I have to have, it's easier to go from warm to hot than it is from frozen to hot. So HIV, STD, and viral hep can keep the system warm for future responses.
1: That's a t-shirt, someone. Okay. Thank you. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. So next up, we'll have Dr. Maribel Acevedo to bring some greetings and begin the thinking as we think about our community response.
8: Uh, Good evening, thank you for having me and and thank you for the panel. Yes, um, we have the privilege to uh, make an agile uh, plan of action, uh, logistics in our clinics in Central Ararat uh, to implement uh, pre-work, the work and the after work, uh, and, and I'm meaning about the education and awareness for our community, then the plan of action within the, our clinics without uh, intervening so much with our schedule agenda. Uh, we implement that every person that uh, asks about monkeypox We stay with them. We analyze the situation. We educate about prevention, uh, management, and and treatment if needed. And also we run the the vaccine clinics. Uh, We started with one day in a week, and now we are uh, vaccinated almost five days a week.
1: Thank you for that. Really appreciate it. Next up, we'll have Dr. DeMarc Hickson speak to community response um, on the mainland.
9: Thank you so much, Daniel, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to be on the panel with our federal partners and also our community-based partners here in Puerto Rico. Um, Again, my name is uh, DeMarc Hickson. I'm the executive director of us helping us people into living. Uh, We are known, well known for our community education and mobilization. Uh, service delivery, advocacy, and community-based uh, research, um, and it seems like we're also becoming known for um, our Florida Culture Black People's Party, as we held our second one yesterday <laughs> during uh, USCHA. So we look forward to having you all to attend uh, when USCHA is back in DC um, next year, uh, and. I think for the community response in particular in D.C. and as it um, is for the nation, in particular for black gay men, uh, we probably have a mixed um, feeling, but we became resilient because we um, are already addressing Uh, carrying the heaviest burden of HIV, but also we know what COVID-19 did within the black community. And so when we started to see the increasing numbers in monkeypox, we reacted quickly, not only as us helping us, but other organizations across the nation, such as Abounding Prosperity, to address issues in terms of access. And so um, as much as we appreciate the federal response, especially in being able to uh, reallocate funds, it became weeks and months later when initially we were told we could not use staff who was on HRSA dollars or SAMHSA dollars. Um, For us, we're not funded currently by CDC, but to hear that, that then further made us do what we needed to do as a um, community-based organization. I want to make that distinction versus some that are community-placed. And so we um, really had to advocate and push our, our local health departments for us to establish vaccination clinics that would be held at us helping us. Because one, one thing that we, I, I do not think that we learned very quickly with COVID was even the, what may seem as the simple registration system, right? And we don't think about the complications that that brings when, for example, in DC, where those vaccine spots hit at one particular time in a day, That was normally around 1 o'clock where many of the individuals and residents in the communities that we serve have the luxury to be sitting at home or at their office to be trying to register for the very limited slots. And so just as an example in Washington DC, we know that by the time we got to 60 cases, the majority were amongst black and Hispanic and Latinx gay men, but over 80% of the vaccinations were among white gay men. And so we reacted very quickly and demanded that our health department uh, move um, for us to be able to uh, uh, provide uh, the vaccines. And so um, it was for us r- hitting those initial roadblocks that we remain resilient. We didn't have all of the initial guidance. Um, but even as an executive director who is FaceTiming one of our clients and being educated, um, had to tell our clients, hey, I, I've had chicken pox. I don't know what else to say. Let's put on some calamine lotion call me tomorrow, take some Tylenol and let's see on how this is, right? And so we had a number of uh, individuals who just self-quarantined because they didn't want to be seen with what was suspected to be. And we didn't have all of the guidance. I know that there's stories um, around very similar where there was individuals that would go to well-known prominent hospitals that were treated poorly, didn't know, and sent away several times. And so I think, one thing that I would like to see as we do talk about the endemics is also to see how we can really um be able to buttress community-based organizations who are able to be a little more nimble and move quickly in response. Because one thing that we did see in DC is that when we were able to get ahead of everything and at least educate folks, even if it was to stop sexual practices or hugging or whatever, because we've done that in COVID, so we've learned we've kept the system warm and those things, that we now see one to two cases um, each week now in D.C., so we've only had around 500 cases, roughly 30,000 vaccines, and I think we've really done a great job to um, increase access, increase education, and really figuring out how to do it when we always aren't in the know, so I'd have more around our response.
1: Thank you so very much. I think, you know, you highlight the importance of the roles that community-based organizations play, especially in in an immediate response. You know, nimbleness, being able to take your community health workers and add an additional sentence, not only on HIV and COVID, but now on monkeypox. I think that's really, really important. So, we are doing what we wanted to do. We still have more than 60 minutes in front for questions and answers, specifically from individuals within the room and hopefully from um, our live stream. So, we have a microphone in the middle of the walkway. Please, um, let's go ahead, begin the lineup if you have questions, specifically from it, for any of our federal partners and our community response. While you tee your questions up, I'll ask one or two, okay? So I think, um, let's begin with community. Um, and I'll open it to either either or. Uh, the first question would be, maybe just talk to us more about what, about the lessons learned thus far. You know, like what can we use the next time or the, the next time the outbreak begins? Are there any lessons that you've picked up since Monkey Box?
8: One of the lesson, the lesson learned um, that uh, we identify is that we have to get together as quickly as possible and engage in meetings with the Department of Health. Uh, not only that the Department of Health instruct us, to uh, for the protocol, local protocol, but uh, including us in in tailoring uh, in the journey of this um, situation, this crisis, and identify other uh, venues or other opportunities to maximize our services. We uh, network with other uh, local uh, CBOs. Uh, We are... um, serving uh, in 20 sites, and most of them, uh, we have uh, bi-weekly meetings to share our experience and to uh, identify uh, different opportunities to maximize the, the, the networking, the resources, and the uh, management for, for patients.
1: Thank you.
9: Yeah, um, I think for um, my experience and I would say the experience of others is, again, really building on our experiences with COVID, where we had to really understand how would we continue to provide these critical services to our patients and our clients. And so for us helping us, we never stopped our services um, at the very beginning of COVID and went into a very, um, I guess, before it was written on paper we just went in to do what we needed to do to continue to provide folks with services. So we started with appointments um, like we had um, our providers who um, are well-versed in infectious disease transmission so able to do protective gowns and the face mask and things and so even in preparation for the next time. We have a lot of the gowns and the mask and the face shield, so we just pulled them right out of our closet again because we couldn't wait for funding again to come from wherever the funding was going to come. And so um, I think that we stand prepared for um, a lot of those things too for the next time, if there is the next time, Um, and really being able to um, be nimble, as I mentioned. I think I would... Um, as a second piece, again, continue to bring up to our federal partners about how to get dollars into non-FQHC spaces. Um, And I understand how it may be already a direct line of funding, but I think we should really explore how others who are not directly funded by the federal government, who are funded through our local and state health departments, because I think there can still be a mechanism there. Um, and I uh, think um, as much as community-based organizations beat up on our partners, because that's what we do with our brothers and sisters, is also to hold other parts of the federal government accountable. And so some of the things that we don't always hear about is like with the company, I think is called Barta, who the CEO denied shipping the initial vaccines. Now, I have to admit, I haven't read up on the whole story because I've been busy and planning that party that was yesterday. But uh, <laughs> right, but we always hold our health department officials accountable, but we also need to begin to hold other parts of the government accountable as well because, again, if that is the company who was releasing the vaccines and they did it after the fact and, and, and not when we started to see these emergent cases, then we could have really been able to get ahead of this in many jurisdictions and not just those cities that are known where, for these things to pop up first. Um, yeah, I think I'll stop there
1: thank you thank you so we have a few people online uh please introduce yourself and proceed with your question
9: hi uh
10: carlos velez i'm an openly gay puerto rican uh and i moved from atlanta in 2019 and i live by the airport here but anyway i got vaccinated at puerto rico Contra, which is a a local cbo that's that's targeting uh, members of the lgbt community and i want to thank any of you who were involved in providing the funding I did recognize some CDC surveillance questions, but uh, my comment is about a report that came out in the media uh, about three months ago about two uh, children who were infected through uh, contact with a, an infected blanket. And to me, that raised immediate alarms because I lived through the early years of the AIDS epidemic where it created a lot of hysteria and people saying, well, we, we need to protect the general population from these evil homosexuals. And my question is, what is the media strategy? Because the media has been blamed for, for creating that hysteria about monkeypox that also drives people underground and they don't want don't to be vaccinated or they want, don't want to come up for care. What is the media strategy to address that hysteria, to, to educate the media, to say, please don't do that uh, because it's it's really not helping anybody. Thanks.
7: I'll start. I'm going to say, and then I'll pass it to Jono. So um, that's a great question. So I'll, I'll say that the the lessons learned from HIV were actually the lessons that were utilized. Um, from the perspective of public health messaging. So uh, my mantra has been um, around monkeypox that governmental public health and government needs to be setting the example um, for how to communicate in a way to prevent stigma and to actively um, avoid it. And so from the very beginning of this uh, outbreak, um, we really took a lesson from the HIV playbook, which was to focus on exposures and to talk frankly about risk. And so um, I think if you look at the sort of history of the way that, uh, that, uh, that messaging has happened, it started by saying that this is the way that monkeypox can transmit. As we learned more about this outbreak and saw that it was really moving in a way quite differently than it would be expected, it became pretty clear that we said the way that this is most likely transmitted is through close, um, intimate physical contact, often related to sex. There's other ways that it can be transmitted, such as objects or respiratory through close, prolonged um, uh, contact. But it's really always important to sort of um, say clearly like what the uh, mechanism of transmission is without pinning it to a population. And so that I think is something that w- that that governmental public health in, in sort of this uh, outbreak did a really good job on, Um, and I think definitely um, the goal is whenever we see such things in the media to be proactive about correcting it. So, you know, it's possible that someone gets uh, monkeypox from contacting an object that has contacted someone who has had monkeypox lesions, but the reality of this outbreak is it's not the most common way, and so I think that just being very clear about transmission and being very intentional to not fall into the trap of saying this is a disease that's associated with the population but rather this is a population in which this virus um, is being experienced is really important and not just semantic but really creates a, a framework of communication that the media will emulate at least the good media will emulate. And then um, folks who aren't doing a good job, we need to sort of be aggressive to correct. And I think we've, I can say from, I I can speak from the White House perspective that we definitely make those phone calls. um, If we see something sort of expressed in a way that is damaging or potentially stigmatizing, and I can leave it to or to talk about the uh, the CDC side of that.
5: I agree with everything Dimitri said. And I I think um, in some ways we did better this time um, and because of starting from the very beginning, thinking about that perspective. I also wanted to highlight that science matters too in this case. We, you know, monkeypox had been transmitted previously through contact with pets and through through you know, respiratory contact and, and touching lesions, and, and so there, the, the, the previous outbreaks of monkeypox virus, and they're different clades, so they're not, they seem not to all follow the same patterns, um, led us to not be able to to talk as much about how it's not transmitted as much as how it is and i think very quickly science allowed us to concentrate and say this is this is very different as as dimitri had mentioned and and it gave us the power to be able to talk more about how it's not transmitted and i will say that cdc is committed to continually look into these um the epidemiology to make sure that we do learn and we know that I, I will say one thing that just because there are a few rare cases doesn't mean that's the major situation or we, we need to give information to people that tells them practical probabilities so that they can take care of themselves and, and actually um, cope with having the infection in, in a way that is, um, that allows them to live their life as, you know, and and be safe at the same time. I also wanted to just add to Daniel's question about lessons learned. There's, there's, there's one other that I think has been a major issue for the doctors D on my right and left, which is, which is... Wait a second. Once again, we have an infectious disease outbreak that, at its start, was embedded in in inequity. You know, we kept we know with HIV we've been fighting against it, and there have been substantial improvements in some of the inequities that that started very quickly to embed themselves in HIV. But that's three decades later, right? STIs continue to have some issues. COVID, again, you know very strong racial and ethnic inequities from the very beginning that we struggled to reverse and they are now reversed, but it's long into that epidemic. So this happened again with monkeypox, Um, but not everywhere. And I know that Dimitri was very involved in working with at least one jurisdiction so that they started differently. And what I, I would like to see is the next time our community is affected by another outbreak or epidemic, we start in the beginning Putting out services, making sure there's information and access so that we actually don't have those inequities start. Because in an unequal society, health inequities will naturally occur unless you fight against them from the very beginning.
7: Just one thing. So um, shout out to Fulton County, Atlanta. Um, Let's name the county and name the city that did um, sort of a very specific effort and their vaccines um, their data came out and 70% of the vaccines, 68%, were in uh, the arms of uh, black and brown people, correlating closely to their outbreak, which is really exciting and important. So that's a lesson to emulate. But I also wanted to add something that you made me think of, Jono, um, which is that one of the lessons learned from this outbreak is also to be transparent about what you do and don't know. And that's something that I think went really right in this outbreak, but is one that is something that you carry with you. So here's the best guidance that we have for safer sex right now. That's going to change tomorrow because we're going to learn more by the science. And so having the humility and and also doing really good risk communication from the beginning to say like, today we know this, it could be wrong tomorrow, but as soon as we know better, we're going to tell you. So that's not just an HIV lesson, that's a COVID lesson that I think we've all learned.
1: I think you said the magic word being Fulton County is more people in line now. But next, please say your name and I'll ask your question or comment. I see Fulton County's in line. <laughs> Hi, uh,
11: Joseph Cherby. I am from Washington University in St. Louis. I also work at the St. Louis County Sexual Health Clinic. Um, so, a couple of comments and a question. Um, so, first and foremost, I appreciate all of the discussion about you know the diversion of funds and how we have had an increased access of funds to a certain extent within our, within our clinics to help combat this current outbreak. However, that, has to, that doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? We exist in the context in which a lot of our resources have been diverted because of COVID. A lot of our individuals have been diverted because of that. DIS has been diverted because of that. And we are already reeling from that And local health departments, as we know, for years have been underfunded. And so my question is, on the federal level, is there any plan to continue a sustained funding for local health departments in order to be able to combat outbreaks such as MPOX? But also, I would like to comment on the fact that I come from Missouri, in which, you know, there isn't underfunding a lot, there's not a lot of funding of public health, I'm gonna be completely honest here. especially with access to treatment and vaccine, a lot of our vaccine supply and treatment went through state health departments into local health departments. And that in and of itself serves as a barrier, especially with respect to TPOX. You know, when us as infectious disease providers who are actually seeing patients have to go through state health departments, state epidemiologists, let alone the paperwork, which you all did a great job at like decreasing the paperwork. Thank you very much, we we're very grateful. But at the same time, the fact that state health departments still have the ability to say, well, no, we have to wait for this, or oh, we have to wait for that, that in and of itself serves as a barrier as well. So how can we decrease the red tape, especially with respect to access to treatment, which we know if we get access to earlier is better, and we of course want equity with respect to access. So. We're very lucky. I work at an academic institution where, of course, we have the resources, but other places, especially rural places in my state and in my region, don't have those resources. So how can we decrease the red tape in order to increase access and de- you know, increase equity?
1: So can I have Jono address the long-term sustainable funding for outbreak Resource. response? Sure. I, can, I can do that. And I, I, I'm sure hers,
5: everyone has comments about the state and local relationship and the ability to get resources to where they're needed. It's, it's a, it's a, a really important issue. I was just going to say that, um, you know, we who work in the federal government can't speak you know, specifically, or, you know, uh, about lobbying, um, for more resources for our work. What we can say is that this, that monkeypox um, virus will be with us for a long time. And, um, and, if we're gonna reach our goals, we're gonna to need to be working on it for a long time. And as Dimitri highlighted, the, the syndemics cause overlapping issues that we need to be able to address for the long run.
7: So I'll say, um, there was a supplement that was um, set to Congress, $4.5 billion supplement um, to address monkeypox um, in the last CR. That was not a, not not accepted by Congress. Um, if when the opportunity arises again to apply for or to ask for resources for monkeypox, we will do that again from the White House again. Um, but I also want to say that um, from the perspective of this keeping the system warm idea, I think that what your comments reveal is that we do have a system that is like not optimized yet, but could be better optimized if investments are made in the HIV, STD, viral hepatitis piece of the world, because that is that easily mobilizable to be able to address um, the, uh, the impact of something like monkeypox. Regarding um, the uh, vaccines and T-pox going through the state, this is a really interesting one because of the fact that both tetanus and the vaccine live in the strategic national stockpile. So um, nobody had it on their bingo card that a infection that um, requires vaccines and treatments from the strategic national stockpile would be an outbreak among MSM. So um, the strategic national stockpile was actually never really optimized to do this. So it used to be that um, that the SNS, the strategic national stockpile, could ship. Vaccine to five locations in the state that they could then distribute differently. So, based on this, a new contract was negotiated by the uh, by Asper, who owns the SNS, and now 2,500 locations um, across the country. Um, can actually have vaccines shipped to them. So what's happening is that that one of the lessons learned from this is that SNS needs to be more flexible to be able to get vaccine and other countermeasures like TPOX closer to people. So that's one thing. The other part, really listening to what the problem was, um, CDC doing fabulous work in terms of reducing the paperwork for the EAIND that was required. The other thing that we did from the White House, um, with the support of Asper that owns the SNS, is we pre positioned TPOX fifty thousand doses out in the world, so there wasn't the same issue of <clears throat> trying to um, get it shipped from the SNS person by person. So um, this new contract will also allow more flexibility. So. What's in the future? I don't know. Like, will the drug be commercialized? It depends on what the studies show. Will the vaccine be commercialized? That's not something that's going to happen for a while. And so I think that um, really trying to build in the flexibility in the SNS to be able to get vaccine and drug closer to people faster is what we've got today. But I I think we hear you for sure. And that's really important feedback in terms of what we can have tomorrow if either of these agents become commercialized. So thank you for your great comments and really thoughtful um, experience and thanks for your service out in the world doing
1: vaccine and TPOX. Thank you so very much. Next up.
12: Good evening. My name is Stefan. I live in Fulton County. I just wanted to give you my experience working for myself and my friends trying to get the MPV vaccine. Through June and July, we were trying to get information. The Georgia State Department public health website was very frustrating because all they would give us is press releases. The Fulton County health department was just as frustrating, no live person, no real information, just the same press release saying things are coming. I was hearing from friends in D.C. and New York, oh yeah, we're getting scheduled, we're getting our first shots. I'm thinking Fulton County, we should be getting our shots. Finally, at the beginning of August, DeKalb County next door got some, but the appointments were gone in a minute. Finally, me and working with friends, we all figured out Henry County, which is an hour and a half away by car, if you're lucky enough to have a car, you could get appointments from. So we were all, you know, I was telling people through the networks that I work with, you know, go to the Henry County website, they were great. Finally, you know, Fulton finally got together and they did a wonderful job at Black Pride at the end of August, but the whole summer was so frustrating and, you know, again, this is just a story to tell y'all. I know y'all know it, but uh, it just, you know, hopefully things can get better, especially in states where it just doesn't make no sense that there's, if there's 60 counties, there's 60 different ways to get something. And I'm just very frustrating. but thank you very much.
13: Thank you so very much. Thank you. Next up, please. Hi, um, I'm Justin Smith. I am at Positive Impact Health Centers in Atlanta, which is in Fulton County. Um, So I have two questions. The first question is concerning the Genios vaccine. So um, we know that we went to the intradermal vaccination strategy. It really is a way to increase the supply. Uh, And Now it seems like we're at a place where the supply isn't really the issue, it's more of the demand piece. Um, For your consideration, would you all be open to sort of considering a future in which moving back to the original kind of dosing schedule is something that you would recommend. Um, given that, again, we're not sort of in that sort of uh, intense scarcity um, period anymore. Um, and also given you know a lot of the concerns that have come up with the intradermal injection in terms of like more uh, long-term uh, marks on the arm and things like that. I know that we've had some guidance around where you can actually administer that have addressed some of that. But, that's still a concern we hear a lot in community. And so just was wondering kind of what you're thinking about that is. Um, And then the second question is really around uh, testing. So I think um, we've done a lot really to scale up our ability to deliver vaccinations. And I think that that is largely working a lot better than it it did, but I still feel like the testing piece seems to be a place where we have a lot of, to use your words, lesions, right? Um, And so, What are sort of the thoughts around kind of how we can improve that part of the system? Because that's still places where people are, you know, calling to be like, where should I get tested? I went to, you know, two doctors and they didn't know how to do it. So I think there's also like a a clinical education component where um, I know friends that have gotten tested and like the doctor swabbed one lesion, which isn't right. You know, so just how are we trying to fix that part of the texting access uh, part of our system? Thank you.
5: Yeah, great. Um, hi. <laughs> Thanks, Justin. So um, it has been a changing environment for for the vaccine. So as you said, there's kind of a switch from um, a, a time of scarcity to a time of um, relatively ample supply. And um, in part of that was um, looking at the science for when it was a, a, originally devised and showing that intradermal vaccination appeared to produce the same or better immunity than subcutaneous, and you only needed about a fifth the dose. So that allowed us to move there. Um, your point is very is important, which is that you know it can um, cause a little bit more pain. It sometimes has um, uh, lasting um, either discoloration of the skin, or for people who develop keloids, there's theoretical issues with more keloid formation, although it hasn't been. Um, documented. But the idea is that people want these alternative sites than just having something that could potentially increase stigma, as, as Dimitri had mentioned earlier. So so a variety of things are happening. One is um, that we did put out guidance that said that you can put um, the um, uh, vaccination site anatomically in a different place, like subscapular or you know, below the shoulder blade, which is not, a, it actually has fewer nerve endings too, so it might actually, you know, cause less discomfort. But also it, it, it is um, out of sight from where people might see if... Um, uh, the, the, the other is um, that uh, we are actively involved in evaluating the, the effectiveness of the vaccine. So our first initial analysis, again, using kind of early preliminary methods, um, showed um, s- fairly strong effectiveness. Um, and we are now, you know, waiting to collect enough data to show whether there's um, the equivalent Um, findings for intradermal versus subcutaneous administration. There's always an option for subcutaneous administration for people who prefer it um, or for people where it's contraindicated to have intradermal. Um, So I think that is already there, but finding that um, the science would indicate that um, intradermal vaccination was as effective as subcut would actually really help people because of this, as you said, this kind of theoretical... Um, concern that people have had, um, including you know, clinicians.
7: I'll just add one thing, which is also there's an NIH study that's happening that actually um, not only looks at subcutaneous versus intradermal, but also at intradermal at one half the dose. Um, asking a couple of questions, which is, If you were to even go lower on the dose, do you have equivalent immune responses? And could you potentially have fewer of the side effects? And so I think everything is always on the table. Um, I can tell you that that one of the really important innovations that happened um, based on community feedback is that um, on the the HHS landing page for monkeypox, um, there's a box that you can click and it shows you what the vaccine... Um, strategy according to supply looks like. And you can actually track what we think we're gonna get versus what we actually have. And so our current estimates of what we need is based on an intradermal dosing strategy. Um, and that's based at actually, like, we based it at three doses per vial to be a bit more saucy than the four doses per vial that most people can get out of the, uh, out of the vial to be a bit more conservative. So um, so I think that um, though it's, it's relative non-scarcity, there still is a level of scarcity in terms of what we have to do. And the, at least at, at first blush, the effectiveness of the vaccine, A, looks good for dose one, and dose two is the one where you get the bigger punch. And then also, like, just again, like, I don't know the vaccine performance data yet because it takes more time but definitely like the fact that the curve is cascading down after we've switched to interdermal is starting to feel pretty good with like a rough first guess of what it looks like your testing question I'd love to sort of get a sense more of like is it uh, about the types of tests or about like access to testing can you like elaborate a bit more so we can sure. answer that Sure so one? I
13: think it may be more of a kind of local issue where people just don't really know where to go and when they are seeking testing They're told that, you know, the clinical facility doesn't sort of know how to do it, you know. So I feel like we're still in that place of there's a lot of confusion in the community. Because I think it's very clear, like, if you need to get a vaccine, this is where you go, right? Um, It seems to be for community that it's less clear, like, if I need to get a monkeypox test, where can I go, right? And so it's really kind of both a communication issue, but also thinking about how do you make sure that the clinical team is actually able to do the test appropriately? So trying to solve for both of those things.
7: So I'll just be controversial and say one really interesting way to solve that is to develop a multiplex test so it's embedded in testing for got for uh, other um, other infections such as either gonorrhea chlamydia depending on if we ever get to the place of asymptomatic screening or from lesion based screening something that tests for syphilis and HSV something that we should definitely advocate for and keep um, asking for like sort of the resources to sort of get to the next level with that said it sounds as if there's a, that, that this is more of like a how can we communicate better to providers and that's like definitely one for us to take back and have some conversations about so how we can do better so providers know that this isn't a scary test to order, that it's an important test, and this is how you do it so that really it should be readily accessible. Um, From the access perspective, you know, CDC moved at a really fast speed to go from this is a test that lives in the laboratory resource network in public health labs in resp- like something that lives there in response to bioterrorism into something that's commercialized. And so like, it seems as if the, the issue isn't so much, I can't order the test more of like the, I, we need to communicate better to providers about how to order it. And like what that really means in terms of, of like, you know, what samples I get, what specimens I get, and that it's like something that should be like embedded as part of their differential diagnosis. So we're going to have to take that one as a note and take it back to figure out how we can do better. But I, that feedback is really important. Thank you. Thank you,
1: Justin.
9: And I think, um, if I can, just add one more part to Dr. Smith's um, comment and question about the subcutaneous versus intradermal. I think from community, it didn't come off as that. It came off, because we started as this, as you mentioned, Dr. Merman, already in uh, inequity. And then when the intradermals came, especially for black folks, it was, why am I giving this watered-down version, which already had been... We had a lot of our white counterparts, white gay men who had already gotten the full doses and now as black and brown or black and Latinx and Hispanic gay men were getting now given this intradermal. So I think that's one uh, very critical piece to say that as we look at and possibly prepare for the next outbreak or whatever condition that we do really start off in the place of equity and that um, and and access. And then I think just one last point. Um, that I wanted to make, um, in particular around the sustainability, or no, back to the testing, is possibly classifying monkeypox as a sexually transmitted infection and embedding it already in our integrated HIV and STD screenings. Because we've been doing this, especially as community-based organizations, I know since, I think, us helping us receive their first testing grant in 96, right? And so we are a place to go for testing. And so I know there were several um, organizations, and I know as um, a black gay man who's living in D.C., knowing Daniel, talking to him about our experiences to get ahead of it in Fulton County, right. Very similar uh, with Kirk Myers in Dallas, Texas, who embedded testing, with or or the vaccine within testing, and I believe we're able to identify um, almost 10 individuals who are unknowingly living with HIV, right. So not to continue to segregate tests as. We we often kind of do in our population of people and really think about how we create these integrated strategies for uh, things now and to come.
1: I see we have two folks standing in line, but before we go back to the questions, uh, I think you gave me a great pivot, um, especially thinking about people living with HIV and being mindful, you know, I think it's 40% of those folks um, impacted by monkeypox are also living with HIV. So I wonder for Dr. Susan, you know, what are what are the ways that we can use monkeypox to either bring folks who have fallen out of care, cause again, I live in Fulton County, so we have 19,000 people out of care in our EMA. Um, What are those ways that we can use this um, outbreak, you know, to begin a new conversation of what does um, healthy um, medical care look like for those people?
6: Thank you for that question. That's a great question. Um, I think, you know, through our Ryan White programs, we have, you know, trusted people in the community. And I think really having them have a voice in this and get the word out and engage the population that they're dealing with. And and from that grows more community trust and messaging. So I think that that is one way that we can do that. But I think I'd like to sit and think about that a little bit longer too, because I think that there's some really, there could be some really innovative things that come out of this. Usually these kind of situations do bring uh, innovation with them. Um, and I think that, you know, the Ryan White program, actually, I'm a bit partial, as, I, as you can tell, but I think the Ryan White program, their providers really are um, pushing the envelope for public health in general. Um, so...
8: Yes, I have to uh, go back to the, the questions regarding the access. Uh, to evaluate patients. I think that one of the things that we have to have in mind is that we have to be empathized with patients looking for information and we have to take time to give them the orientation that they need because sometimes they they go to different places looking for the information and they didn't get it so we have to be empathized, we have to have compassion, because it's uncertainly a uh, uh, lack of trust of, uh, or mistrust uh, among the healthcare professional, because sometimes they don't get the answers that they are looking for. So we have to take the time to listen, to accompany the patients, and to... Uh, explains uh, that this is a condition that can be acquired uh, for contact, not uh, sexually transmitted, not because of sexual orientation or gender identity.
1: Thank you for that. Empathy is really, really important.
8: Please.
14: Uh, hi, thank you so much for being here. My name is Julia Zygman, and I'm a senior program analyst for HIV at NATO. I wanted to say I really, actually I have a question about TPOX, but first a comment. Uh, I really appreciated what you're sharing about the need for expanded funding for HIV and STI staff, as well as the opportunities that come through Ryan White to uh, build on that community of trusted providers. Uh, Gentle acknowledgement, though, that while we have to expand our funding for HIV and STI staff, they are burned out. Uh, They're already always being asked to do more with less, and they've been deployed for COVID. I have the privilege of working with local health departments, HIV and STI staff across the country, and as you said, they're really awesome. They're good at working with, well, depending on... Are part of in our history. However, they know what they need to do to talk about these infectious diseases. But we keep adding things to their plate. So while we need to expand the funding that already exists, we also need to look at new innovative structures of funding, such as you know a national prep program that expands it yep. um, expands a network of providers that don't just look like medical clinics, but can look like us helping us and others that are they're demedicalized and they look like and are run by people that are trusted. Uh, So helping expand that type of funding as well as leveraging what already exists. Also, we appreciate the funding flexibilities that have been created. I think we had 300 health departments on a webinar trying to learn about the different ways they can use their funding. So that's been helpful and we need more, but you know that. Uh, The question is, Completely different vein, but it's about TPOX, and I'm wondering if there's been any conversation at a federal level about prioritizing individuals who use drugs, especially those who inject drugs or use opioid drugs, um, in prioritizing them for access to TPOX. Given FDA's guidance in the last few weeks about the um, trying to limit the amount of TPOX we use to prevent antimicrobial resistance, there's not that much criteria on who gets it besides severe cases. But considering many individuals who use drugs may not be able to access other forms of pain relief and the massive overlap in this community and those in our people living with HIV or those at heightened risk for it. Is there considerations for helping them get access to TPOX or other treatments that isn't just opioid? Thanks.
7: I can try. So first of all, thank you for, um, all, of, um, for all of your comments. Really important. I think everybody, I I, I just want us to start getting the mantra of HIV and STI and viral hepatitis keeps the system warm because we've shown it once, twice. So much is built on COVID. I just have to go on this tangent. So let's talk about the research. Who's doing the research in the um, in the uh, in Geneos vaccine? That would be the HIV Trials Network. Who's doing the research in TPOX? That's the AIDS Clinical Trials Group. So. The system is kept warm by HIV STI and the viral hepatitis infrastructure. In terms of TPOX, I think we're going to have to take that one back and have a conversation. Just the idea of the overlap of like opioid use and the potential need for like different like the the, the issue around around pain control. One of the challenging issues is that anecdotally people say that the TPOX is helping them with pain. And if they do have like the severe pain, like if they have rectal symptoms, that technically according to the guidance means that they could, they qualify for TPOX. And if they have HIV, even if they have milder symptoms. That alone will qualify them for TPOX because of the mitigating of the circumstance of the underlying condition. With that said, that's a great area for us to discuss in terms of of like sort of you know maybe even clearer guidance around around pain management, especially in individuals who may have uh, sort of opioid related issues. So we'll definitely take that one back. Yeah, thank you. That's a great comment. We really appreciate it. Thank you.
15: Please. Hi, my name is Joshua O'Neill, I uh, use he, him pronouns and I'm the director of the sexual health program at Fulton County. Sorry everyone for Fulton County conversations. Before I get started, I saw some confusion in the room around the terms interdermal and sub-Q. So just for folks that may not know, sub-Q is kind of the back of the arm if you get an injection, almost like a flu. You can correct me because I'm not a medical provider. Like a flu shot in the back of the arm versus interdermal is more like a TB reading underneath your skin. So we can use language that people understand. Um, next I uh, these gatherings would not exist without advocacy and especially activism so I'm here having a conversation with two people one from the CDC and one from the White House uh, thank you for having me and I want to point out and this you know I guess I should start by taking some sort of responsibility for Stefan's comment and experience earlier in Fulton County because uh, there's a lot of frustrations you know we uh, put 800 slots up and within four minutes they were gone uh, uh, you know they were it was very tricky we responded in a lot of ways, and I would love to share all of those ways because I think we learned a lot of lessons and I think that we overcame that. But my first comment that I wanted to say, ironically, uh, um, is that when this first started in the first several weeks of monkeypox, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the site that I was using as a resource was this GENEOS distribution website that showed how many uh, doses were a- allocated to certain districts throughout the United States. And um, Georgia was the fifth highest uh, state in terms of the amounts of infections that we had with one of the lowest uh, uh, distribution rates, allocation rates in the United States. So we had 3,200 up until uh, at least three or four weeks into uh, this uh, uh, epidemic or this outbreak. Uh, whereas some spaces like uh, New York and California had between 30 and 50,000 doses allocated to them. And then there were states uh, throughout the United States, I can count at least seven that had uh, a quarter to at least half, if not a quarter of the infections that we had, but had twice as many doses allocated to them. And so I think it's your responsibility in your spaces to ensure that the places that are the hardest hit are the ones that get uh, the attention and the resources initially and immediately. And so I just want you to consider that when these things come up again in terms of uh, it shouldn't have to be through certain people who order vaccines for whoever, however, they sort of the, the distribution pipeline works in states uh, to be, to be the, uh, the, the only reason or way that they get access to these vaccines. It takes people at a national federal level who have uh, more agency over these situations to be able to ensure that these places get it um, because Fulton County is still behind in terms of the amount of vaccines that we're getting. Um, and that's just an advocacy or activist comment. The other thing that I want to request from you all is that I think we tend to wait for guidance from folks that are really top down, and I think that that's really problematic because what happens is the guidance comes from folks that are often disconnected from what's happening on the ground. Where we're, you know, we've done over eight thousand, almost ten thousand vaccines in Fulton County currently, and um, I'm already seeing issues like, you know, lack of access to treatment. So all of our peers are at home struggling in pain and don't have access to treatment, and we as a community need to figure out how to get information to them about home care around whether it's antihistamines whether it's calamine lotions whether it's SITS baths the ways in which we can ensure that they have some sort of like uh, tools or information to minimize the impact of of monkeypox on on them and and on our community and unfortunately it's like not medical and we can't give medical advice so the State Department of Health isn't putting it out the CDC isn't putting it out but we need to ensure that like what we're coming up with and, and the information we're giving to our communities has like a megaphone in the ways in which the tools you have, whether it's the websites, whether it's the guidance, whatever, so that you can uh, uh, magnify this information. And another example of that is hyperpigmentation, right? We're talking about this spot that's left through this intradermal access. And we have found in Fulton County that it's actually deterring people from coming back to get their second shot. And there wasn't really any information around other places to get the vaccine. Or uh, we're also not having conversations again about home care. What are some ways in which you can minimize this? This appearance of this spot, which could be keeping it out of the sun, which could be certain vitamin A oils, right? So we're talking to people at Emory to figure out who are clinicians, like what are the solutions to making sure that this is uh, it, it, that we can get this information to community as, as quickly as possible. Like, great that we vaccinated at least seventy percent of Black and Brown people, but if seventy percent of Black and Brown people were coming through and we like made sure that they had access, but now has this issue that's coming up with that's unaddressed, like. How do we ensure that we're responding accordingly so that they know that we're, in, that we're here for it and we're uh, giving them all the information that we have as transparently as possible? And I would love to make sure that that gets also magnified. So that is my request to you is like, instead of waiting for this top-down approach, I'd really like to figure out a pipeline for us or like a way for us on the ground to get information to you so that you can respond to what we're seeing on the ground. Thank you
7: couple things. So first of all, thank you. Um, so um, first about the vaccine allocation. I think that um, in real time, things changed. And so at the beginning, um, the vaccine allocation was based on a ratio of actual cases versus um, projected individuals who could be at risk for monkeypox. So, the sort of number of people living with HIV in the jurisdiction, along with individuals who would be uh, PrEP candidates or people who had indications for PrEP. So, um, that flipped, and so it was 25-75% cases to to at-risk population. That then flipped to 50-50, and that's when I think, at least in Atlanta and in Georgia, you saw like a change in vaccine allocation and more, and and the cases powered up beyond the population at risk. And so um, having that sort of nimble ability to sort of change um, is why sort of vaccine allocation, again, started to mirror more what you were seeing on the ground because it was originally based on the risk population because we wanted to make sure that there was a baseline of vaccine that was going to places that had uh, individuals at risk, even if they didn't have cases. So what's important is that, like, you know, we've, we listened and made a flip um, really based on the feedback. So that feedback was really important. And it's good to know that like lots of jurisdictions haven't pulled down their allocation for phase four yet, which means that we still have plenty of vaccine based on demand, because really um, a lot of the rules um, are actually superficial. Um, If there's a jurisdiction that needs vaccine, all they have to do is give a call to ASPER and ASPER works with them to get vaccine, but we're not hearing um, sort of a really high demand for additional vaccine currently, but totally take the note. your um, Fulton County guide to hyperpigmentation is great, and there is a bidirectional way, which is like we look and if you send it to us, we send it up. And so I think I, we, we are. I think it's being looked at in terms of, of guidance that's come from the ground because your experience is so important and like your guidance is so important. I think everyone is looking at it to see if there's like a way to sort of amplify it. pain management. So um, there was guidance about pain management that came out of CDC really, really early on because of the fact that, um, that, that um, we were hearing that so many providers were under-treating pain because there was a disconnect between what the lesions looked like and what people complained about. So that went out um, as well. TPoX is still investigational. So we don't really know what its effectiveness is. If you actually look at the MMWR that was released, the first 500 or so cases that were published, it looks like it's safe. Um, that TPOC study that's happening right now, which is the STOMP trial, and I know in it, in there's lots of sites open in the country, that ends up being super important in terms of actually learning what the effectiveness, the real-world effectiveness of TPOCs is to, to humans. In the meantime, though, the EIAND exists, and also the guidance for, uh, for, uh, for uh, pain relief is also there since it's so important. I think we got a good note about thinking about maybe nuancing it more for folks who are opioid users. So um, I think that... Um, you know, your feedback is really important and keeping it coming because we tend to respond to it and try to fix where we can to be able to sort of uh, uh, leverage the response so it actually um, addresses the changing needs on the ground. So thank you so much, and thanks for your work in Fulton County. Yeah, of course. Thank you so very much. Please. Hi, my name is
2: Jose Taierre Jimenez. I'm from Aspira, de Puerto Rico, and I, my principal language is Spanish. Y mi cuestión es, ¿cómo estamos hablando de la viruela símica? Cuando acabo de recibir una noticia que en Puerto Rico el acceso a PrEP es menos de mil personas actualmente en Puerto Rico que tienen el acceso cuando se proyecta 25 mil personas. Y me gustaría saber cómo podemos trabajar para que ese acceso sea más amplio.
15: We're talking about monkeypox, but I'm wondering, I got the news today that in Puerto Rico, access to PrEP is only for 1,000 people, when it should be at least 25,000 people. So I would like to know how we can expand access to PrEP so that we can end HIV.
1: I think that's a great pivot. Um, (laughs) Any of the federal first, and then we'll jump to the community? Yes, um, can we? So it was a question specifically sitting on the intersection of um, monkeypox and PrEP. The fact that there is roughly, I think it was mentioned, roughly 1,000 individuals using PrEP when there needs to be more than 25,000. So how do we really tie that conversation of um, ending HIV in, um, I would say, monkeypox?
5: We're on your, we're on your team. Um, I mean, all of us work with HIV, many for you know, our entire professional careers because we care so much about it. And, um, and that expertise is what was pulled in for Monkeypox. Um, but we do think that um, some of the work that's being done for Monkeypox can build the infrastructure and support and, and we can learn from some of the science and programmatic work to actually do a better job with sexually transmitted infections and HIV and viral hepatitis in the long run, maybe even in the short run. Um, so we are very conscious of thinking about how they interact with each other in a positive way programmatically. I can't speak to the current situation with the, what, I, what you described as this massive gap between the number of people who would benefit from PrEP the number of people who are currently getting it, but that's the type of um, information that we really appreciate hearing, and CDC can look into that more carefully and work with a, um, the health department to, to determine if, you know, what we can do better. Um, PrEP should be available for people, many more than what you're, um, you're saying, and it's a, it's a very important HIV prevention tool that we've spent a long time trying to get to the people who need it. So we will look into it. And thank you for the comment.
8: My humble answer. We need to take out the cumbersome uh, documentation, calls, times, uh, back and forward with the health plans. We know that uh, every health plan has to cover at least one prep. I know that uh, Truvada generic is the cheapest one, and not uh, all the patients are uh, comply with the criteria to be on Truvada, uh, and we have to make uh, justifications, calls, a team that uh, work around us to work to access uh, the medication for the patient is. Um, very cumbersome frustration we have frustration but we have the heart and the team members that fight behind our uh, patients so I think that the key player or gatekeepers that we have right now are the health plans and we know that we have laws that have to cover them
1: coordinated more across health plans to ensure access is there. I really, really think that's important. Please.
3: Hello, Cora Treyas cartagena Pronounced uh, she, I'm with NMAC. And my question for all of you is, do you know or have any initiatives to include um, the documented communities in your efforts for vaccine awareness, treatment, and such? And if not, this is a request to include the in undocumented communities.
1: Can you repeat the question, Cora?
3: Yes. Uh, if you have, if you know of any initiatives, or if you have any initiatives to include the undocumented communities in vaccine awareness and treatment and such, because we mentioned mistrust, fear, and oftentimes we don't. Communities, undocumented communities, do not have information, and um, there's a lot of hesit- hesitancy.
7: Great, so no, thank you for the comment, I'll start. So I think one of the um, imperfect strategies is really the work that we've been doing with um, HRSA-BIVIC, so the um, the Bureau of Primary Health Care that looks at federally qualified health centers, uh, the community health centers that allows access um, for people regardless of their insurance status or their immigration status. Um, I think you already heard that uh, vaccine supply went to Ryan White, but it also went to the community health centers as well. With that said, in the... um supplement request to Congress, there was an ask of $1.2 billion to further support Ryan White, as well as the federally qualified health centers to really address this issue. So really an area of ongoing important um, advocacy to make sure that um, there are resources that go in this direction. So vaccine supply going to these places is great, but again, I think we've heard from many folks how the system is so stressed by so many things that are happening. New resources are necessary to be able to support the health of individuals who may not be uh, insured adequately, underinsured, or unwilling to go to some of the other venues um, where uh, where people may seek health care because of, of worry, because of their immigration status. So it is both an answer, and an adequate answer, and then a note for us to take back to sort of think if we can do anything that's better.
3: Thank you. I just wanted to add that I'm aware that there is eligibility, but oftentimes the message to community is not loud. It's not clear that you do not need an immigration status to have access to vaccines or that there's not going to be a consequence immigration-wise if you provide your, your name, your phone number, your personal information. So thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. Peace. Hi, good evening. Uh, Warren Gill, and I'm with Age
7: United. And uh, we just uh, worked on a vaccine hesitancy project earlier this year around COVID and people living with and vulnerable to HIV. Um, uh, You talked earlier about uh, uh, supply and demand uh, uh, issue or uh, where demand is not as high right now. How much of that is, vaccine hesitancy broadly? How much of it is people not
13: knowing that they can access it? uh, Where are the problems with demand? Great question. And also, I'm sorry, uh, do you have any suggestions
1: for those of us that work in this area to help increase demand? Great question. So the line of vaccine hesitancy, vaccine access, and any resources
5: you... could start, but I actually think the community organizations would have a lot of uh, great information about what's going on with with a lot of the clients. Um, I, I think it's all of the above, Warren. It's it, it's you know one is that there's um, vaccine confidence took a hit with the political um, politis, politicization of vaccination and healthcare in you know during COVID, and and then on top of that. Um, you know there's the potential for stigma and discrimination there's a um, there's you know the initial experience where there there was a limited supply which I think left people with a situation that they might have to try very hard to access the vaccine um, and truly as was mentioned earlier some providers don't have access to it or not as comfortable. so if you go to your normal you know, clinic, SCI clinic, or or even a community-based organization, they may not know exactly where to get access to the vaccine. Um, I will say, though, that's what we deal with in our day-to-day lives. If you work in HIV or STIs, this is what we do. We know how to both, you know, have campaigns that support the information, that, that meet people where they are. We have influencers that are trusted by the community who can find out kind of what's going on and share um, you know, helpful tips we can change the policies and structures of the systems that that essentially don't pull people in and and ultimately what i'd like to do is have a situation where instead of us asking people to think about getting vaccinated we actually have a system in place that brings the vaccine to people and we have a lot of programs now that are increasingly you know doing vaccinations at you know pride events and other kind of situations for and venues where people are going but that also has to happen at the clinic it has to be where you know you don't have to ask your doctor for uh, a, a, a monkeypox vaccine. That should be something that, that is automatically essentially offered to you um, be, be, because of the information that they already know about you. And although that's an ultimate goal, um, I, I think we're on the path to get there. But but um, once you get beyond the early adopters, the people who really care a lot and, and in the beginning of an outbreak when people are afraid, it it really pulls in traditional public health and community to be able to respond in the ways that we, um, we've we been doing for many other things.
1: Thank you. Did you want to say anything for the community?
9: Yeah, I'd say from the experiences that we've seen, the strain that the supply gave already gave folks an ill feeling. Um, I think that, again, building on the lessons from COVID, folks took those lessons and really self-quarantined, if you will, change behaviors as I mentioned before. Um, and I think for those who received their first dose, I think they just said, okay, I got enough coverage. I think I've seen enough on social media, et cetera, that I'm kind of aware um, to, to kind of see the things to look for, right? And so we also talk about, we have sex positive framework us helping us and we talk about why, what, like do you have sex with the light on or the light off? And if you have it on with the lights off, you aren't able to explore and see what you're getting into, if you will, right? And so helping folks to really understand these different pieces. And I think um, with that, people have really started to not demand the monkeypox uh, much more. We um, have a second office in Prince George's County, which is oftentimes not said as, or known as Ward Nine of D.C. Um, and we actually had to cancel our last clinic because there were only eight people who registered. And we send this out massively. Work with the health department to broadcast it. I've heard we have a better response for one that we have on this Wednesday. So I think that's just a part of it that I think people have just gotten tired because, again, we're just trying to come out of COVID and these different things. And I think just as one last note where we've been talking about sustainability and how do we make sure that we have this equitable system, I would encourage everyone as we are looking for November that we are really taking our advocacy to the ballot box where we want to have a Congress that does represent those who have our best interests. And so not only just on the House and on the uh, Senate side, but also as you have jurisdictions such as D.C. who is fighting for statehood and other jurisdictions such as Puerto Rico who vote where their voices are not counted that we also begin to look at um, our advocacy in those efforts as well because as the model with DC is represent is taxation without representation. So thank you.
1: Thank
8: you. I I would like to add that hes, um, hesitancy uh, can be overcome with education, massive education among the island. Here in Puerto Rico, we have a very good uh, communication uh, from the Department of Health, from every CBO, including Centro Ararat, that has a very active communication uh, presence uh, regarding uh, the topic, and also to be available to answer the questions, to take the time to, uh, uh, for their concerns, and to talk with every employee that has a, a concern about it because the employee that is educated will educate others, including their families. So, it's, it's like a wave. Uh, so that's our um, highlight for, for this uh, topic.
1: Thank you so very much. So believe it or not, we have 34 seconds to go, okay? I think this t- timed out excellently, okay? so. We actually will have our federal um, partners back with us tomorrow for our closing plenary, which I am certain you all will be present with us, right? I I didn't hear that, it's (laughs) okay. And I also can see it in your eyes that, while wow, I really, really want to see some slides from these folks. So believe it or not, we have slides awesome. for you tomorrow. So also, please, please, please come back, bring your friend with you, okay, um, for, for tomorrow's discussion. Any last minute things that you just have to get out that will not wait until tomorrow morning?
7: Just thank you. I think
1: Give yourself it. a round Thanks. of applause. Come back tomorrow. So again, we really, really, really want to say thank you um, for participating tonight. And we look forward to finishing our conversation tomorrow during our closing plenary. You all have a safe night.